As we bring our unrivaled series in for a landing today, we're going to see it from the vantage point of the gospel truth and the error of man. A.W. Tozier said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'll narrow that down even further and say what you think about when you think of Jesus Christ is the most important thing about you. Jesus seemed to be locked in on that idea when he started to question his questioners in Matthew chapter 22. And the big issue was going on. It was the true identity of Jesus. That was what was at issue. Many got it wrong then. Many get it wrong now. And so today in Matthew 22, what we're going to see is how we must view Jesus and how that will make a difference in our life. That we must acknowledge the whole truth about Jesus in order to appropriately worship him and accurately witness to the truth. So take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 22. And please stand with me to read God's word. We're going to read verses 41 through 46. God has something to say to us from his word today. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Lord God, thank you that your word stands. That your word is absolute truth. And thank you, Lord, that you are the authority figure that we acknowledge in our lives. So, Lord, we pray that you would teach us, that you would correct us where necessary, and, Lord, that you would redirect us to serve you with all our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today is the last of an eight-part series in the bigger series in Matthew. If you're counting, this is sermon number 139 in Matthew. I am counting. But we're in this series called Unrival, Christ's Authority in a Rebel World. What we're seeing is that over and over again, Jesus' opponents question his authority. They're questioning his right to act as well as his power to act. And in the process, what we see them doing is they keep trying to trip him up. It's almost like a boxer in a boxing match that just keeps getting pummeled. And, and, and it keeps getting you know, smacked down and he just keeps getting up and you're thinking, stay down! But they keep getting up. And what happens is, uh, we began in Matthew 21 actually, and they asked him a question that was pointed at tearing him down. And the question was, by what authority are you doing the things you're doing? By what authority? Basically, who gave you the right to do what you're doing? We didn't give you permission. And Jesus made it clear that he was acting upon 
his own authority, that of God, that he wants all people to acknowledge that authority and then align themselves with him, but they kept refusing to acknowledge Christ's authority and his authoritative answers. He gives them a parable of two sons. And the idea was about changing your mind about Jesus, that repentance and faith must be a regular part of our lives. They didn't want anything to do with that. He gives them a parable of of the tenants, the vineyard, the rejected stone, and all that, and, and about how God is so good, and man is so bad, and the gospel is so powerful, and God's judgment will be so complete on those who reject him. And they don't want anything about that. So he gives them the parable of the wedding feast, and how gospel invitations are going out, how kingdom invites are going out, and that how all who refuse are going to be rejected, and all who insist on their own way are going to be ejected, and, and that the elect that come to faith will rejoice forever. But they don't want anything to do with that. And so they conspire together, and the Pharisees and Herodians, who don't usually agree, came together in agreement against Jesus, and they brought a political question regarding whether it was all right to pay the poll tax. And Jesus taught them that they ought to honor God by honoring man. They didn't want to hear that. So the Sadducees come in, and they bring a theological question. They're trying to discredit Jesus and say that the resurrection is ridiculous. And Jesus lets them know that if you're denying what the Scriptures say, that you don't understand them and you do not know the power of God. And then back come the Pharisees. They came with a theological question about what's the greatest command that God has given in the law of Moses. And Jesus makes it very clear, love God, love your neighbor. They didn't want to hear that either. And here's Jesus patiently fielding their questions. One after another, taking their insults, taking their animosity, and coming back with pure love and wisdom. And now... He's going to question them. He's going to turn and question them. In verse 41, we see that it says that the Pharisees were gathered together. They were were still huddled up. It's like they go back to their huddle like a football game after each play. They're losing badly. They're like on the one-yard line, and they still huddle up. They need to just take a safety, basically. Jesus questions them. So he turns the table on them, but see how patient he was? Question after question after question. Insult after insult. And now Jesus is turning the tables on them, but he is not going to try to hurt them. He is not going to try to discredit them. He is going to help them. They were trying to hurt him. He wanted to help them. And the first thing we see is the error of man. The error of man. What the falsehood that man perpetuates. And it is this. The error here is saying that Jesus is just a man. It's a partial truth. It's an obscured truth. It's an, they're, they're not acknowledging the truth. Verse 42, the question comes, what do you think about the Christ? You notice that Jesus does not say, what do you think about me? He says, what do you think about the Christ? The Messiah that you say is coming, whose son is he? Great question. They have an immediate answer. The son of David. They knew what every good Jew would know. 
that the Messiah was to be the son of David. So they were correct. And incorrect. They were correct and it was an inaccurate answer. They were correct. But it was insufficient. They were correct because every Jew correctly believed that the Messiah would be the son of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David. And he says to David, when your days are fulfilled, verse 12, 2 Samuel 7, 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you. And God is speaking to David about his sons that would be born after him. But then he says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That was God's covenant with David. If you go over to Jeremiah, in chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So God is pointing to a transcendent king, not just a human king. But the Jews were right in saying that the Messiah would be the son of David. Psalm 89, the psalmist makes it clear as well about what would be happening. Psalm 89 We'll read a few verses out of Psalm 89. First, verses 3 and 4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. They didn't see beyond the human generations. Verse 20. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him. So that my hand shall be established with him, and my arm shall also strengthen him. Verse 24. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. Verse 27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. The Jews, though, could not see past the idea of the Messiah being only a physical descendant of David. So the error of man here is saying that the Messiah is just a man, that Jesus is just a man. And it's incomplete. That's where they stopped. Let's just take the President of the United States as an example. President of the United States is a husband and a father and a citizen and, and the president. But what if 
the question comes out, what is, who is our president? What is he? And someone who says, well, he's a father. It's true, right? But it's incomplete. In fact, he's most known for being the president. That would be the, 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 the biggest title that he would be known for. Many fathers, only one president of America. The idea here is they're saying the Messiah is just the son of David. That's it. End of story. It's just a generational thing. Now, what happens when you say that Jesus is just a man? What kind of errors get perpetuated when you say that, well, the Messiah is just a man? I grew up thinking that, by the way. It wasn't until I was born again by the grace of God that I realized as I read God's word and was taught God's word that Jesus is God. You might have been in a similar situation where you didn't believe that Jesus is God. When you say that Jesus is just a man, you are not humble before God. What happens is you become arrogant because then you start thinking, well, if he's just a man, probably a better man than me, but just a man, I have, I have opinions too and my opinion makes more sense and I'm here now and so I'm in charge. I have been interested in the noted atheist Christopher Hitchens ever since he wrote his book in 2007, God is Not Great. And what interested me about him is that he was resolute in his atheism, that he was consistent in his unbelief, that he was a vile man who repudiated God and said many things against Jesus and against Christ followers. But what you got to give him is he was consistent in it. In fact, in the face of death, in the face of cancer that was, was killing him, he said, don't pray for me. Don't pray for me. Because I don't believe you're praying to anyone in particular. But there was an interview between Christopher Hitchens and a Unitarian minister, Marilyn Sewell. It was over his book, and Marilyn Sewell asked him this question. She said, the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, she says, and I don't take the stories from the scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of the atonement, she said, and that Jesus died for our sins, for example. So she asked him, do you make a distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? So here's the answer from the noted atheist Christopher Hitchens. He says to her, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifices, sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. But he goes on. He goes on and he says, well, Paul said, the Apostle Paul said, here's the atheist quoting the, the Apostle Paul, and he said very clearly that Paul said that if it, is not, if it is not true that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then Christians are of all people the most unhappy. And then he said, if none of that is true, and he said to Sewell, and you seem to say it isn't, then I have no quarrel with you. You're not going to come to my door trying to convince me either, nor are you going to try to get a tax break from the government nor are you going to try to have it taught to my children in school. And then he ends by saying, if all Christians were like you, I wouldn't have had to write my book. 
Now, both people, the Unitarian minister and, and the atheist, were arrogant against God. Both were denying the clear teaching of God's word. The error of man is denying what God's word clearly says. So they just say, well, Jesus was just a man. Many religions will say that Jesus was a really, really good man. Some religions will say he is one of the best men. Islam says that he is a prophet among all the other prophets. But I want you to look at verse 43 with me. Because Jesus comes back with a a statement that I want you to look at the first part. We're going to look at the whole statement in a few moments, but I want you to look at one part of this statement. Verse 43. Jesus comes back and he says to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying... Let's just stop there for a moment. I want you to look at this. I want you to see this. David, in the Spirit, said something. That phrase is very important. That phrase, in the Spirit. It's very important to what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. It's very important to to what we need to understand. What was so important about it? It's the same wording that was used of John when he was in the Isle of Patmos, recorded in Revelation 1.10 and in in Revelation 4.2, where it says that, that I, John, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, I know that as soon as we hear these words, uh, in the Spirit, many of uh, those who are more charismatic will be thinking in more feeling and emotion-driven ways. But what does this mean? David, in the Spirit, said. It means something very specific. What it means is that he was under the inspiration and control of the Spirit of God in a very unique way way in a scripture giving way mark chapter 12 verse verse 36 which is the parallel passage says jesus said david himself said in the holy spirit david is saying this in the holy spirit under the operation of the holy spirit as the holy spirit is speaking scripture to him and through him that he would say and then write down Like Peter tells us, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It's the same idea of 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all scripture is God-breathed, that is inspired by God. So the, the idea here, if we want to not engage in the error of man to say that Jesus is just a man, that we need to look to God's word for absolute truth. Not to justify our ideas or our opinions or even our sin. All scripture is inspired by God. It is God-breathed. So God wants us to have undiluted, full-strength, biblical worldview. He wants us to have faith in what he has said. Their error kept them from doing that. In fact, that's, that was what they were doing wrong. They weren't going to God's word for absolute truth. They would take their ideas and they would impose it upon God's word. God does not want us to have a watered-down worldview that is weakened by worldly wisdom he wants us to be humble before him not presuming that we know more than god but that's what the pharisees were doing so the error of man was very clear here and jesus is pointing them to god's word david in the spirit said this now let's look at what he said 
Because the gospel truth here is very clear. The gospel truth here, the second idea here, is, is, is up front and, and cent, front and center, and it's that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Verse 43, again, he says, How is it that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? Saying. So verse 44, he is bringing them to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1, is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Over and over again, this verse is referred to. And there's a reason. Because it very clearly shows that Jesus is God. Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord. So, go with me to Psalm 110 for a moment. You need to see who wrote Psalm 110. David did not write all the Psalms. But Psalm 110 says it's a Psalm of David. David is speaking. Now, how do we know that those who put our Bibles together and put that note in here, that that is true? I'll tell you how we know. Because Jesus said, David said it. Remember where we're at in Matthew 22, and he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. And Jesus says, David himself said, in the Spirit. So he's saying, David spoke Scripture. And here's what he said. The Lord said to my Lord. Now, the Jews would not pronounce, even say out loud, the name Yahweh out of, out of reverence and respect for God. They would, they would put another word in there. They would say Adonai. So it, 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 they would read it, Adonai said to Adon. Basically, the Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, God the Son. David is calling the Messiah his Lord. So the point Jesus is making is, though, how can he be his son? How can he merely be a descendant of David? What he's pointing to is that, that the Messiah is over and above and transcends this generational idea because he's God. Verse 44 Sit at my right hand. The right hand is the place of all power. Pointing to the idea of the indestructibleness of the Messiah. And he says, sit here by my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The place that you stand on, the, the stool that you stand on, the, what is beneath you. The idea is that his enemies would be totally helpless in his presence, that they would be under his control, that they would be subject to him. They would literally be cowering before his awesome authority, that he is all-powerful and omniscient and ever an all-present character. So Jesus, in verse 45, says, If David then calls him Lord... How is he his son? He's saying, basically, if you believe God's word, you would have seen this, you would have figured this out. But they didn't believe the word of God. D.A. Carson said that Jesus' question is not a denial of the Messiah's Davidic sonship, 
but it is a demand for recognizing how Scripture itself teaches that the Messiah is more than David's son. What they should have answered is, he is the son of David and the son of God. That's what he should have said. The beginning of Matthew's gospel makes it very clear. What did Matthew say this gospel was all about? Let's go, Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David. The son of Abraham. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 21. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The baptism of Jesus, Matthew chapter 3. Verse 17, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This points very clearly to the deity of Christ. I like the way that R.C. Sproul condenses the idea and, and really summarizes it by making several points. First of all, that the deity of Christ is essential to Christianity. You can't be a Christian and not believe that Jesus is God. And secondly, that the church has continued to have crisis of heresy regarding Christ's deity in the 4th, 5th, 19th, and 20th centuries. And it is still going on. Heresy always comes, infiltrates through the church with people that are denying what the Bible says. He also makes the point that the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325 affirmed the deity of Christ declaring that Jesus is of the same substance or essence as the Father and that he is not a created being. He makes the point that the New Testament clearly affirms the deity of Christ, that here, here is Jesus, the Word incarnate, the Logos incarnate. He is revealed as being not only preexistent to creation, but eternal before creation. He is said to be in the beginning with God, and he is said to be God, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The fact that he is God demands a personal distinction within the Godhead. The fact that he is God demands inclusion in the Godhead. The New Testament gives him the titles and the names of God. God bestows the preeminent divine title, Lord, upon him, Kurios. It's here, and it's in Philippians 2. As the Son of Man, Jesus claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. He, he uh, was willingly receiving worship, even as Thomas confessed, my Lord and my God. He claimed to be the Lord of glory and, was, and, and to be able to forgive sins, to have the authority, the power, and the right to forgive sins. Paul declares that all the fullness of God dwells in Christ bodily. Colossians 1.19 All the I am's in the Gospel of John basically point and bear witness to the identification of Jesus as God. The other thing that Sproul points out is that in the 5th century, the Council of Chalcedon, AD 451, affirmed that Jesus was truly man and truly God. And that his two natures, human and divine, were said to be without mixture, confusion, separation, or division. That God's word is clear. Very clear that Jesus is both son of David and son of God. So what should we do in that realm to stay away from the error of man 
What do we do? With, how do we take that gospel truth and, and let it go into us, into our life, and, and not hinder what God might want to do? Because God is word, is, God's word is so clear that Jesus is God, when we look to Jesus, we don't look to him as a mere good example, but as the one who brings total transformation in our life. So we need to look to Jesus for total transformation, not as just merely a good example. All those who would engage in the error of saying that Jesus is just a good man is, are only going to get as far as saying that he is a, a good model to follow. And again, plenty of false religions, plenty of idolatrous religions, plenty of, of things that are completely against God will say that, you know, Jesus is a good example. If you want to find a good example, he's a good one to look to. Too many forget that Jesus is the one who totally transforms, not the one who just you could just model yourself after. There's an arrogance to say that Jesus is a good model for me, and that's it. What happens is many people become religiously upright and inwardly completely empty. Plenty of people can be spiritually dead on the inside and not born again and look the part of a Christian because they do the things that Christians do. Outwardly, they could be looking good, but they're void of true heart change. And that's what Jesus is, is pointing to with the Pharisees is it starts in the heart. It's not starting on the outward appearance. So you've got the heart versus the outward. If there is true heart change in our life, we come to faith in Christ and we have true heart change, there will be life change. There will be evidence, evidence that something has happened to change the direction and the motivation of our life. Now, when there isn't true heart change, there is a pharisaical fixating on outward things and others' faults. Now, I realize that confessing Christians can do the same thing. I realize that born-again believers can do that same thing. But isn't it easy? Let's think about even even amongst believers. Think about how easy it is for us and then realize that it's just programmed into those who don't believe. How easy is it for even a born-again Christian to condemn visible sins of other people but condone the hidden sins in their own heart? Think about it. It's really easy for us to say abortion is wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. Drug abuse is wrong. And every, every other thing we can think of. But we're always looking outward. And, and the, the thing is, sure, the Bible says those things are wrong. And, and you can't just ignore that. But when you major on that, it's very easy to condone all sorts of things and be very happy to live with those things in our own hearts. And so we'll condone judgment and gossip and lust and slander and hatred and insinuations of others inadequacy because you know those things are things we can hide a little bit better those are they become like the acceptable sins and then there's certain sins that are the outward sins that you just can't do that and be a christian but all these other things even gluttony we can do all these things that the, the bible says these are against god how about just that, that latent anger that just seethes inside of some people that just goes out and, and really hurts people, but that's just really easy to let go and say, you know, we got to stop this and stop that. What did Jesus say? All people will know, if you're my disciples, if you have love, one for another. 
What did Jesus say? Love God, love your neighbor. Now, we should want to serve God with everything we've got. We should want to serve Jesus. We should love to serve Jesus with our mind and our will and our emotions. I know last week I said, look, it's not all feeling driven, but feelings are part of the picture. That's part of being human. So it isn't driven by feelings, but we should feel it. We should want more than anything to serve the Lord Jesus Christ as God. And everything about us should be working together in alignment towards Christ. That's the way we want it. But I realize I'm preaching to the choir here today. I realize I'm preaching to the majority of people who say, well, I'm on Jesus' team, and I don't think those Pharisees were right. So, So we're good there, right? We're all good there. But what I've seen and what I've found in my own life or even in others that I have talked to over the years is that sure we say, hey, I need to acknowledge the whole truth about Jesus because I want to appropriately worship him and I want to to witness to his grace. And, And we will even say a true knowledge of God leads to a truly changed life. But what happens is there's some disconnect that happens between the believing of the truth and the acting upon it. The actual making the decision to do the very thing we say we believe. And I found that many people are happy to remain unchanged. I have found that many people are happy to remain unmoved. Even to excuse their own sins while pointing the finger at others. I've had someone say to me once, when exposed to the Bible and to what the Bible says, this was a person professing to be a believer, They said to me, you know, the Bible's right. God's right, and you're even right to point it out to me, but I will not change what I'm doing. But you know what is interesting is that seems so blatant, doesn't it? But I can do the very same thing when I read the Bible and then go and do something exactly the opposite. How will you know if you have a truly changed heart? Well, it will show, right? It will show. You go back to what we said last week, that that Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor. If you love God, it's going to show. If you love people, it's going to show. People won't be running away from you if you love people. Psalm 37. Looking at this, thinking about this this morning. Psalm 37. That's what David said. It's so easy for us to fret. Fret. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. So you're not supposed to ignore everything that people are doing that, are, that is not right. It says, trust in the Lord. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land, befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. Be still before the Lord, verse 7, and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way and carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. I don't want to be happy to remain unchanged and unmoved. And I trust that you don't either. 
But you know what's interesting is what happened in this situation. Verse 46. Verse 46. It says, No one was able to answer him a word. In the face of absolute truth, they were silenced. They were speechless. And then it says that from that day onward, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Two days, and he would be killed. Two days, and people would be shouting, maybe some of the same people who came with this with all these questions, they would be shouting for his crucifixion, for his murder, for his death. Now they had answered partly correct, son of David, but they're basically saying he's just a descendant and nothing more. They had answered inaccurately and incompletely and so they were silenced by his response. What I think is, the Pharisees' silence is like a really loud siren that surprises you. You don't even know what's going to be going off. Or it's like your alarm when you forgot you said it. And it's downstairs and you have to run down and shut off your phone. The Pharisee's silence is like this loud alarm, this huge siren, and it's testifying against them. It's saying, you cannot ignore what Jesus just said. Their silence, I think, is proof their own hypocritical avoidance of of the implications for themselves. Here's what they should have done. They should have acknowledged that Jesus is the Lord and Messiah. What they should have done is believed in Jesus. And no one, uh, believer or not, can ignore the implications of Jesus' words for our personal life. We have to deal with this. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. Mike Wilkins said, if Jesus is truly who he declares himself to be, then we have a most unique message to proclaim. Jesus is unlike any figure ever to walk the earth because he claims not to be simply a messenger of God, but the unique son of God. So we have a very unique gospel message to proclaim, and we proclaim it not only to other people that have yet to believe, but to our own selves who already believe. And we must decide where we stand. You must decide where you stand every single day. It's not a one-time occurrence where you say, I I prayed a prayer and believed in Jesus, and now I'm going to go on my merry way. But every single day, you must decide daily to act upon that truth. It's the truth you know. So what do you say about the Christ? It's a question for us. Not just for the Pharisees. What do you say about the Christ? What if the transcript of your life was put out for everyone to read, would the proof convict you of you saying about the Christ that he is God? What if the totally hidden video was going running all the time and, and everyone got to watch it? Would it convict you of saying that the Christ, living that the Christ, believing that the Christ is God? 
This is a call to confessing Christians and to unbelievers. Do you believe it? Have you been broken before God? Do you truly bow in worship at Jesus' feet? And if so, it's going to show. And you will be changed more into the likeness of Christ. Now, I already told you, I know I'm preaching to people that are saying, hey, I'm, I'm in, I'm all in. And I will tell you, I have learned immensely from observing your lives. Those of you who I know, obviously. If you're, if you're new here today, I don't know you, and so I can't say this uh, truthfully. But to those of you who I know, and you know who you are, I have learned immensely about what it means to love Jesus, about what it means to be broken before Jesus. And I recognize how far short I fall every single day. And I know you do in your own life as well. I think we all understand how much we need Jesus. It's interesting. The Pharisees were rebuked very clearly. This was a smackdown. (laughs) This was a rebuke. You can't call it anything else. It was a correction. It was a rebuke. They were wrong, and Jesus showed them they were wrong. But there's something else going on here. The other thing going on here is that Jesus is re-inviting them. This is like the ultimate mercy invite. They're getting another opportunity to believe. It's like Peter walking on the water, doubting, sinking, and Jesus pulls him into the boat. It's like Peter denying Jesus three times. And and, and after the resurrection, Jesus coming to get him and recommissioning him to serve him because Jesus called him. And he didn't keep himself in the faith. Jesus did. Spurgeon said that The gospel is a gospel of giving and forgiving. Giving and forgiving. See, God invites us to re-engage. And he invites us at the place of highest cost. He really does. He invites us at the cross. Lord, thank you for all you have done and all you are doing and all that you will do. Lord, we pray that you would Send us by your grace to be used by you for your glory and for the good of others. Lord, may your will be done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.